So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly happy hour today on Trending. Every Monday, diving into topics related to our day-to-day, moment-to-moment happiness, wherever you find yourself in life. We're actually going to talk a little bit later on about maybe you know someone who's single or you yourself are single and perhaps for a prolonged amount of time. How do you make the most of your single years? We'll also unpack uh, a saint who I think it speaks a lot to the challenges we all face in our vocation, whether a prolonged moments in single life or just that dissatisfaction that anyone might find, the desire for a home, the desire for a child, the desire for a new or different job or to live in a different state. There's so many things that can come up for all of us. And I think the saint uh, that we'll unpack today speaks profoundly to understanding where we are at in our life. Joining me now is Beverly Thompson. She's joining us from the British Highlands, or actually the Scottish Highlands originally uh, from England. And we're going to talk about her work. Beverly Thompson is the author of the book Antidepressed, a breakthrough examination of the epidemic of antidepressant harm and dependence. I mentioned her book a few weeks ago here on Trending as I've been reading through it. And it talks about the crisis we're in today with depression. Uh, We know that antidepressants are the second most prescribed medication here in the United States. And many studies have continued to emphasize that this question, but also the clarity that antidepressants aren't really effective um, and aren't necessarily what we need to be choosing uh, to work through the struggles we are experiencing. And so to speak keenly to this issue, joining me now is Beverly Thompson. Beverly, welcome to Trending. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be talking with you. Now, your work stood out to me about a year ago, and we've been trying to connect since then about the topic of the trend in antidepressant use, uh, the harm of antidepressant dependence, and talking about real solutions and the real problem people are having surrounding happiness and depression as a whole. Can you speak a little bit to the trends we're seeing when it comes to antidepressants? Yeah, sure. Well, at the moment, I think um, one about one in five Americans take a psychiatric drug. Um, you know, millions around the world take um, antidepressants, and the prescribing of antidepressants is continuing to soar. Um, I always start by saying, um, you know, when I talk about antidepressants, that no one should ever reduce or stop taking antidepressants without consulting their prescriber. That is really, really important. Um, so we, yeah, we've, you know, antidepressant prescribing is continuing, as I say, to saw. But, you know, one of the questions that that I hoped uh, to answer when I wrote my book was, do we really need them? And I think one, that's one of the questions that you are really interested in too. Um, I suppose we, most of us have taken these drugs, if we have them, we haven't become informed about what these drugs actually do and don't do. And if we did, we would probably think twice about starting to take them. You know, I I never say that people shouldn't take antidepressants, but I say that they should be informed about the potential risks as well as the benefits. You know, there there is so much, it's such a complex issue and there's so much we don't understand about these drugs Mm. still. 
So let's talk We're a little bit about the dependence that's happening for many people. You mentioned one in five Americans are on an antidepressant today. I'm amazed even, you know, I'm a millennial and so many of my generation, very blase, like, yeah, I've been taking on an antidepressant. I've been on it for X so many years and I'm surprised time and time again by the journey that's led them to where they're at with the antidepressant. And again, that dependence and fear of coming off of it. Yeah, I, you know, after 12 years, plus of research, um, my hope is that we start to question the safety and the efficacy of these drugs before we need to, before we start to take them. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, and to me, and to I hear it in the media a lot that we need these drugs, these drugs have saved my life. But unfortunately, needing these drugs has kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy because there are millions of people around the world now who are dependent on these drugs, need them, and don't actually realize. And that has really become their problem, their, de their dependence. So will I, should I explain a little bit about what um, dependence is on antidepressants? Yes, please do, Beverly. Okay. So as I said, you know, people often say antidepressants save my life. But it's often not until they try to reduce their medication that they start to ask questions about how the drugs change them, change them and their lives. Um, so to explain dependence. So being dependent on antidepressants means we need them to function in our new normal state. So these drugs don't cure us. I mean, we're often told, you know, we have a chemical imbalance and this chemical imbalance needs to be fixed and these drugs will cure us. But actually what antidepressants do is um, they change us. So being dependent on antidepressants means we need them to function in what has become our new normal state. And this new normal state is an altered version of who we were before we started taking the drugs. And that means that any reduction or changes to our antidepressant regimen can induce serious, phys often serious physical and mental adverse effects. So there are millions dependent on these drugs around the world. And people choose to remain dependent because the adverse effects that they suffer when they try to reduce or withdraw, often told by doctors they have a relapse, is insufferable and they go back to their doctor, they go back to their prescriber, they are given more drugs and they continue on. You know, dependence is one of these things that makes us incredibly vulnerable. vulnerable. So especially in the States, you know, where many people, I think it's millions that can't afford um, the cost of their drugs. If we are suddenly unable to access them or communicate our need for these drugs, we we are in a very very difficult situation it's not as simple with these drugs as you know if we stop taking them then they, they just stop working right you know stopping and stopping abruptly can be can prove fatal mm -hmm. and I, that is true and i 
that's something as to why this topic has been of interest to me for years. I've seen firsthand uh, with friends and close family um, the challenge of antidepressant use, the abrupt stopping of them, the change in dosages. We've seen a number of suicides or suicidality within uh, friend and family groups because of uh, the issue of antidepressants and how they are utilized. And it really does beg the question. I know many people firsthand have this experience, but with the large pharmaceutical companies and kind of the inability to make progress when it comes to any of the lawsuits that have come forward over this, there's just, I would say, a lot of disinformation. And, you know, I think a lot of people will talk about this. And I think you have two camps. One camp who said, I would never take an antidepressant. And then another camp who, you know, takes it. And of course, you know, if that's something that's necessary, but... I like your work because you talk about real solutions, you talk about the side effects, the problem of dependence, and the importance of informed uh, consent with regard to taking it, especially for a long period of time. Can you talk a little bit to some of the side effects? I know especially in your research on this topic, you really kind of peel back the layers of the onion to help people understand the connection of the side effects occurring today in the brain chemistry. Yeah, sure. As as I said, you know, we have been told that these drugs actually, you know, will will fix our chemical imbalance or our serotonin imbalance. But there was a recent study which has been in the press very much by University College London, which actually tells us, you know, that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that serotonin has um, anything to do with um, depression or is the cause of depression. So first of all, we have basically been lied to. And and we've been lied to by psychiatry for many years about this. But most of us who work in the field have known this actually isn't the truth. Can you, know, you, you just clarify about- that? Because for those who are just joining us, this is really important that the claim is that serotonin is the key component in depression, but the research has been clear for years and something just came out again, I think you said from the University of London, that serotonin is not the cause for depression and yet that's what we're trying to alter with these drugs, correct? Yeah, so we are told these drugs are treating a medical condition for which we might have been often given a subjective diagnosis. So we're often told they cure a chemical imbalance. But the reality is these are powerful psychoactive psychotropic drugs. And in fact, they're no different to illicit drugs. And we really have very little understanding of how they actually work. So this recent study at the University College London confirmed there is no evidence an abnormality in serotonin causes depression. So what we do know is, as I said, they don't cure us, they change us. They change us physically and they change us psychologically. And one of the problems that, or one of, you know, the, the benefits have been widely promoted in terms of um, antidepressants and the risks have been massively downplayed. So patient and anecdotal evidence, and I have read thousands and thousands of patient experiences and testimonies. The patient evidence, anecdotal evidence, paints an incredibly different picture to the one portrayed by doctors, by the pharmaceutical industry, and your wonderful TV commercials. I suppose what we have to think about before we go into a prescriber's office is, Are we being treated medically 
with powerful, often life-changing drugs for conditions which are simply symptoms of, you know, our ability to cope with aspects of our lives. And if that's the case, don't we really need to think long and hard about this? Mm-hmm. Isn't that profoundly, I think, a question of the time in a time where we do live in a culture where we want that quick and easy fix for everything, a frustrating state in life, um, you know, that we're going to talk about singleness later on today on Trending, and it can be such a challenging, heartbreaking, and difficult season in life, but we live in the 21st century of immediacy, and so sometimes with our medication approach, it's this approach of immediacy, that quick fix. Uh, we hate suffering in the modern day. Briefly, could you just mention uh, a handful of those side effects from being on antidepressants for a number of, for a prolonged period of time or even a short period of time? Sure. Um, I, I usually, the most, probably the most important study that I could quote um, in terms of adverse effects. And I, I'd like to call them adverse effects rather than side effects. Because I think of something on the side as, you know, a salad I get with my dinner rather than... Um, so there was a 2018 study um, and it asked people directly um, about, you know, their responses to antidepressants. Um, and it revealed that in real life um, research, the adverse effects are much greater than, you have to remember that most of the research that is done in this, this field is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so this was an independent study. It was an online study and it included 1,430 people and from 38 countries around the world. So 70.6% of people said they felt emotionally numb. said they felt foggy or detached. 66% said they felt not like themselves. 66% had sexual difficulties. 62% had drowsiness. 60% reduction in positive feelings. Um, 59% distorted dreams. 58% withdrawal effects. 58% agitation, um, fifth modality. And and these are, if we think about it, these, these drugs are supposed to make us happy. They're supposed to make our lives better. But isn't it strange that they have such paradoxical effects? So right. these drugs that are making us happy and are making us better, and thousands of people keep, millions of people keep taking, reported to you know cause all of these incredible adverse effects which are actually making their lives worse it's interesting because i worked for a number of years and if you're just joining us that's a beverly thompson she wrote the book antidepressed a breakthrough examination of epidemic antidepressant harm and dependence and beverly i worked for a number of years in the crisis pregnancy centers uh, working with women firsthand who are facing an unplanned pregnancy and we'd see these girls who came from difficult life choices and circumstances and over and over again so many of them we would be with them as they would go through the process of 
going on to an antidepressant uh, that you know we'd be with them alongside their journey of whatever was happening and we'd see the side effects that these girls were having we'd see the emotional changes the numbness the de detachment um, the decrease in libido the drowsiness especially sometimes you know, you'd see that in pregnancy you'd see that in postpartum yeah. in these women and we would see firsthand these girls are not being serviced the way they need what their real need is a brokenness and a human experience experience not a medical challenge and I think that's what's fascinating and you point this out in your book that it's really been recently for the first time that we've seen where depression it has been treated as a medical diagnosis in really this nation in the world can you speak a little bit to that yeah I think you know going back to the the, the the question is whether we need these antidepressants or not. I think one of the, the most important things that I should say there is, if I look at the experiences of the many thousands, mil, thousands of people that you know I have encountered who have had difficulty with antidepressants, you know, we don't need antidepressants. We actually need connectedness. We need um, a societal change in how we live our lives. We need governments to take responsibility for the things that are actually making us unhappy, making us depressed, making us anxious. So I'll give an example. M many of the people that you know started on antidepressants were, uh, were lonely. Mm -hmm. They were simply lonely. And I talk about so often, you know, how many reductions in, prescri in prescribing, how much, you know, how much it would change if we could simply address the epidemic of loneliness that we have in society nowadays. Amen. So true. It's at the heart of what's happening with antidepressants. I would argue predominantly among my peer group too. You know, and people think that they're surprised when they discover they're lonely. You know, maybe they're married and they have this family. Why am I lonely? We still need human mm -hmm. connection. We still need uh, that that connection with people of our age, of different ages and different seasons in life to provide those mentorships and that guidance and that loving responsibility and reciprocity that has been lost in a very individualistic culture that we live in the West today. Yeah, I absolutely, totally agree. And But I think that we have to take a degree of responsibility ourselves. You know, we, you know I, can, I can talk for endless hours about, you know, how I think the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry take, need to take more responsibility. But I think we need to recognize more that the way that we live our lives isn't keeping us healthy. Beverly, can you talk about how a person can make informed decisions without falling into antidepressant use and dependence? Wow. I suppose what I wanted to do when I wrote the book is I wanted people to question their prescriber before they are handed a prescription. So, and I want them to realize that they have a right to ask their prescriber, are these drugs? safe and are they effective you know which most of us don't do be still even though we do three billion google searches a day or three million i can't remember but we do lots you know we, we still just accept that a doctor knows best we live in the age of a consumer and we take so little responsibility in terms of 
trying to understand to the best of our ability what these drugs actually do. So we have a right to receive honest answers from, from, from the medics, from the prescribers. In all other areas of medicine, we have to give informed consent before treatment. So if you have an operation, if you have procedures, and I want us to make educated decisions and informed choices about antidepressants. So as we talked earlier, you know, the chemical imbalance theory was, we now know, and if we work in this field, we've known for a while, but people are starting to understand this was actually very useful fiction to get patients to accept their mental illness and, and, and to get them to take medications. And we call this manufactured consent. So when it comes to these drugs, there, was actually, there has never really been any informed consent. Mm. And isn't that the challenge? So the lack of information, it's kind of such as a difficult ch topic of things such as birth control. You know, a lot of people don't read the pamphlet of the birth control to see what the side effects are. It's a similar thing, I think, with hormonal contraception, or not contraception, with antidepressants. Read the pamphlet, know what the side effects are, be informed, yeah. have the information you need to make decisions because a lot of this is listed in those pamphlets for the antidepressant itself, correct? Yeah, that is so true. And, you know, an SSRI antidepressant can have up to 200 adverse effects listed. Wow. So if you were to take out the patient information leaflet, and read everything that is listed on there, again, you might think twice. And it's really interesting, you know, because I talk about the millions of people who, who are dependent on these drugs. They still list this as something that is quite rare when it comes on the patient information leaflet. I want to dive more into the topic of brain chemistry and even the question about children taking antidepressants. It's become more common, especially over the last 15, 20 years. And with COVID, it's been a huge thing leading to a number of fallouts in terms of behavioral issue with kids, uh, depression, anxiety, suicidality. So we'll come back talking about the moral question of antidepressants with kids and whether or not they should be taking them. That's Beverly Thompson here on Trending with Timory. She's the author of the book Antidepressed, a breakthrough examination of epidemic antidepressant harm and dependence. You're joining us during our weekly happy hour and we're diving into real solutions for difficult topics in our culture, but ultimately achieving lasting happiness, which is true joy in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll also come back talking about single years. Are you single? Do you know someone who is We'll discuss concrete ways to navigate those single years. This hour is sponsored by Solidarity HealthShare. Join thousands who choose ethical and affordable health care. Go to CatholicHealthShare.com. Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. It's our weekly happy hour every Monday here on Trending, and often that means that we're addressing difficult topics, topics that touch on wounds or changing things in our lives. Today, we're going to talk about singleness. You know someone who's single. Are you single? We'll talk about making the most of your single years, 
But joining me now is Beverly Thompson. She's the author of the book Antidepress, a breakthrough examination of epidemic antidepressant harm and dependence. We've been talking about the importance of informed consent, sort of like we talk a lot about informed consent when it comes to contraception, the lack of information people have and dive into with regard to side effects and really treating, at least in this case, the topic of depression. We talk about real solutions, need for community, uh, the challenges of the many side effects the drug dependence that's happening. It, antidepressants are the second most prescribed uh, prescription today. It is new in the last really 50 years that depression has been treated as a medical issue and where we're medicating this in particular. And we want to shift the conversation to the topic of children. Should minors have antidepressants? Is it a moral issue? What's happening with children's brain chemistry and especially long term? Beverly, I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, the rise of children, especially with the last few years of COVID, taking antidepressants. Is this good for their brains? What's the long-term side effect and should it be done? Well, this is, um, this is a, a subject that I'm so passionate about. Um, and I come at it from the perspective that children have rights. But I ask the question, do adults have the right to tell a child they have a faulty brain rather than addressing what we've talked about before, the societal problems causing their distress? You know, we are medicalizing the distress of children and without any biological justification. So is this a moral issue? Yes. No one wants to harm their child, but in my opinion, Nothing is more cruel than allowing children to believe they are mentally ill and they need psychoactive drugs to fix their brain. And, you know, we talk, I talked before, the, these are powerful psychoactive psychotropic drugs. They are just the same as illicit drugs. They change our brain chemistry and they change the chemistry of children's brains. And do we have a right to do that? You know, I often quote um, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of a Child. And 25 years ago, it made a promise to children that it would do everything in their power, that they would do everything in their power to protect and promote children's rights, to survive and thrive, learn and grow, to make the voices heard and reach their full potential. And actually, in Article 33, it states you have the right to be protected from dangerous drugs. But by encouraging to believe they are broken and need drugs, are we taking away their right to thrive and learn and grow, to be protected and reach their full potential? And anecdotal evidence tells us we might well be doing just that. Hmm. Can you speak a little bit to the brain chemistry specifically in children? Because with children, we're talking about brains that are still in the process of development. Some brains that haven't even embodied, that haven't even started, or are just going through the process of puberty. How does that disrupt and influence long term uh, the the use with the use of antidepressants? Well, we can go back to the fact that even with adults, there are no long term studies that tell us exactly, it's only anecdotal evidence that tells us the long-term harm that these drugs do. So we, we have a generation of children who will be entering adulthood dependent on antidepressants. 
they uh, might end up vulnerable for many reasons. But when they question the drugs that they were given as a child, or they don't like the way they turned out, because as I said before, these, these drugs don't cure us, they change us. Who are they going to blame? Who will they blame for that? You know, parents have usually already bought into the messages that, you know, conditions and disorders are biological and need drugs. And you have to remember that the um, antidepressants, SSRI antidepressants, carry an FDA black box, black box warning. And it has done since 2004 uh, concerning their safety and efficacy. It's far from reassuring for under 25s. And there's an alarming link between rising suicide rates and antidepressant prescribing. So the use of use of antidepressants by people under 25 with depression is associated with double the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Hmm. Why isn't there long-term research or accountability on this topic, both with adults, but especially with children today? Well, there isn't long-term research because um, all the research is funded by the pharmaceutical industry or most of the research. And research studies last, you know, six weeks, a few months, um, but longer than that. And if we look back to the fact that many people have taken these drugs since, you know, the birth of Prozac in 1988 and are still taking these drugs, the only way we know really what is happening to them and what has happened to their minds and their bodies due to these drugs is because of the experiences and the testimonies that we have from their experiences. Um, we desperately need more independent research on these on these drugs, um, and we need that to happen very quickly. Um, but in terms of children, most of the research was hidden in terms of the trials that were actually done, especially. Uh, a drug for the drug paroxetine, which was given to children. And there's a very good book by David Healy um, that, that tells about the research that was done. As we're talking with this crisis among children, I have seen firsthand, you know, we see this crisis of gender ideology today, and especially over the last few years, a rise in depression, a rise in suicidality, a rise in out of nowhere uh, the sudden onset of gender dysphoria. And a lot of this has been linked to uh, the misdiagnosis with depression and depression not being properly treated. And we're hearing about these young kids who are going on to antidepressants. And the next thing you know, uh, they're not sleeping well. So now they need to take something else to help them sleep at night. And it's this just ongoing downhill snowball where these poor kids are suffering and I feel for these parents because I think the parents don't know what to do and the kid they want to see their kid healthy they want to see their kid happy and thriving how do you navigate through these situations in the midst of what is seemingly you know this this dependence on both the antidepressant as well as the sleeping drugs as well I think that as parents, we need to educate ourselves about the powerful drugs that we might be giving to our children. Um, it is so important because, as I said, you know, no parent wants to intentionally harm their child. 
But it's down to the fact that we have taken these drugs for many, many years, and it's only recently that we've started to question their safety and their efficacy. And we really now, more than ever, need to desperately question. And when we go to our prescriber, we really need to ask that question. Can you give me, can you tell me the proof that these antidepressants, antidepressants are safe and they're effective? Going back to what we talked about early in terms of, you know, the societal issues, it's it's just the same with children, isn't it? And we talked about loneliness. Loneliness doesn't, you don't have to be 85 years old and living alone to feel lonely. Children can feel lonely today in today's society too. And I think there are lots of societal issues that we need to look at really. But I don't think medicating our children is really helping anything. Because if I look at the long-term effects from the anecdotal evidence, and I look at the suicide statistics and self-harm statistics, we really need to start questioning more and more. And one of the things that I must say that if anybody has a child who is on medication, again, it should never be stopped abruptly without consulting a prescriber. That's Beverly Thompson, the author of the book Antidepressed, a breakthrough examination of epidemic antidepressant harm and dependence. Uh, she strives in this book to help inform adults, parents to the reality of antidepressants, the dependence, the side effects, so that you can make real choices. Because we live in a time where, whether it's contraception, it's antidepressants, we really don't have a full grasp publicly of you know mainstream conversations surrounding the side effects and the harms and real solutions to the challenging circumstances we find ourselves in in life. And so I hope you'll check out this book, Antidepressed. We'll post the link on social media. Follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E to catch a link to this or in the podcast notes that's been beverly thompson here on trending coming up on our happy hour we're going to talk about the issue of singleness are you single do you know someone who is how do you make the most of your single years it's a growing challenge for many people and so helping our loved ones or ourselves through this is an important uh, point in our society when it comes to happiness Today's programming is sponsored by Colby Academy, offering a customized Catholic curriculum. Colby Academy knows the ultimate goal of education is to help our children be saints. More info at relevantradio.com slash Colby. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Okay, I am officially on baby watch over here. My sister is due today, and lo and behold, the contractions are happening. So if you could keep my sister Jacqueline in your prayers, I'm so excited to meet my niece and soon-to-be goddaughters. If you could keep them in prayers, we are praying for them and excited. And actually, fun fact, so a lot of you probably remember and know this. My sister and I were married two weeks apart. We then, a couple years later, both had babies exactly a week apart. And then we're pregnant again at the same time, except for this time she's having a baby 
now instead of in December when I'm due. So, and they're both girls again. So two sets of girls, nearly the same exact age. It's lots of fun with our house. So if you could pray for her, we're on pins and needles and it's actually a lot of fun because we had my sister do today and then I had a cousin do the day before and a cousin do the next day. So we have been in baby heaven the last few weeks. So excited with all the joy of children over here. So lots of prayers and I will keep you updated as this auntie is very eager for the news. Okay, so it's our weekly happy hour today on Trending. And one topic that is near and dear to my heart is the challenge of being single for a prolonged amount of time. I've been there uh, being unmarried for a long amount of time, wanting to be married, dating for way too long, the agony that that can uh, bring. And one of the challenging things is I think that when you're single for a prolonged period of time, it kind of leads to this vocational crisis at times and I get it and yet there's a saint I want to talk about in a little bit and I think she speaks to that vocational crisis that can occur within prolonged single years but I also want to speak to my experience of those single years and making the most of them. I recently read an article of coming from Radiant Magazine, and it gave six concrete things to work on during that single time. And as I was reading it, I was going, yes, yes, because this is where I found my greatest amount of joy in the midst of the stage in life I found myself in. And for me, if I were to summarize what my focus was on during those single years, and this is applicable whether you are single or you know someone who is, and you are just trying to be a friend through the navigation of that that time. And I really want to encourage you, if you have friends who are single, who so deeply desire to be married, or people who are desiring to have children, pray for them. Pray for them. I really do try to make sure that my friends who are single in that state in life, that I'm praying for them. And God answers prayers. Let me tell you, I'm so grateful that that list is shortening with time, and I hope it's a beacon of hope. But for me, the three really important things when I was single was I recognized that I was happiest when I recognized this was an opportunity to serve, that I wasn't serving within the context of the family. I didn't have a spouse to serve. I was serving within within the context and the opportunity of this time that God has given me of being detached from living within the context of a marriage and family life. I also understood that my single years were a profound opportunity to grow in my faith. And that that wasn't the only opportunity to grow my faith, but that it was a foundation for whatever God was going to call me to today, tomorrow, and in the future, years to come, and a hoped-for-at-the-time vocation uh, to marriage. Now, those three things are really made up for me the heart of what I did, the choices I made. And for me, it was all about being involved in pro-life work and ministry work as much as I could while growing and working on growing myself, which was so important. But I think one of the challenges is that when you're not married and you want to be married, whether you're, you've dated someone for a while or you're completely single, it's frustrating because it's easy to think that my current state in life is not my vocation. And I'm waiting for my life to start when my vocation starts, when I quote unquote get married. But the real challenge in no matter what state in life we're in is understanding that my current state in life is the vocation I have right now. That doesn't mean that God might not be calling you to 
marriage, to be a parent, to enter into religious life. But we have to focus on that universal call to holiness that we all have, and that is holiness. And part of being holy is living out that virtue of joy. That's why I wanted to talk about it today during our weekly happy hour. Because to live out that virtue of joy in the midst of your current state in life, when there are so many desires for other things, is the real challenge day to day for all of us, not just if you're single, of achieving true peace and true joy, which by the way, are two of the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. The here and now is the vocation you're living in, even if that means I'm unhappy because I'm single, or I'm unhappy because I haven't had children yet, or I'm unhappy because I don't like the job I'm in, or I want to live in a different state or a different house. There are so many moments of uneasiness and desire that can pull us away from living in the current moment, the current state in life where God has allowed us to be or chosen for us to be if we've been cooperating with his will in our lives. And No matter what, the current state in life is, again, the current opportunity for holiness, but it's also preparation for what God will call you to further down the road in your vocation. So I was reading this article from Radiant Magazine, Sarah Moon, and she was talking about six things to do while living out those single years and making the most of them. Number one, she said, engage in small sacrifices. I think this is so important, those small day-to-day sacrifices, especially today with these prolonged years of living single or living alone or with a couple roommates. You're not in the midst of that challenge of the give and take of having a spouse or having children. And it's easy to kind of just say, well, whatever to your roommate and get a new roommate if things aren't working out or to insist on your way because maybe you're paying for more of the rent or whatever it might be, or maybe you're living alone. And so these small sacrifices really are in the midst of the environment you find yourself in. Maybe you're still at home living with your parents. Maybe you have a difficult roommate. Things such as, you know, not just kind of being so this is mine, this is yours, and I do my dishes, you do your dishes. Having a little bit of, okay, there are a bunch of extra dishes in the sink. I can do that. Finding these mini sacrifices that, oh boy, marriage and children force you into, but can be really difficult if you live those prolonged single years and you have a harder time making those itty bitty sacrifices that present their opportunities far too often if you've not been in the habit of it. So I liked that advice. Another thing that Sarah Moon says is get involved. This focuses on the whole idea of opportunity to serve, but it also falls into the third topic of community. Get involved, whether it's diving deep into the church you're at, you know, maybe it's youth ministry, maybe it's education, maybe it's hospitality. Getting involved, and for me, it was pro-life work. Getting involved in pro-life work in so many areas, volunteering my time, working in the pro-life movement. I, I had the ability when I was single to say yes in a way I never otherwise would have had that opportunity. And in that pro-life work, there's meaning because as we know, we discover ourselves, the truest meaning of ourselves as human beings in giving ourselves away. That is a symbol of Christ on the cross. That's the discovery of our human anthropology of Adam and Eve in the garden. That who we are as human beings is made to be a gift. And so finding joy in the midst of our current state in life means getting involved, being generous in those single years. The third topic is community, how important community is. And this is so true. One thing that I really love that's pointed out in this article from Radiant Magazine, Sarah Moon, is 
take the opportunity to make sure you're fostering relationships with people not just your same age, not just single as well, but who are in different seasons in life, different age ranges, different seasons, those who have families, those who are above. I've been very blessed for some reason. I've, I've had a, a lot of mentorship um, from the older generation, but in particular, there have been a number of women in my life who have been widows, and I've lived with widows and have learned a lot about their marriages and their experiences and their woes of discovering themselves as widows at a very surprisingly young age and the challenges that can bring, but the joy it can also bring. And they're living a single life too, but at a different phase in their life, and to see how they had to battle just like everyone else, accepting the current state in life, accepting the change in vocation when they wanted something else, in addition to mourning the loss of a spouse, uh, maybe finding themselves parenting even if adult children, but you know, being the sole parent to children, whether minors or adults. This social life, I think the community dimension, we learn so much from our peers, but remembering Peers need to be in different seasons of life as well. They can help us learn a tremendous amount, I think in particular about suffering in a time where we hate suffering. And those single years really are, can be a period of suffering. And it's easy to allow ourselves to just ruminate in that rather than coming out of that in the fullness of the life God is calling us to. Another of the f four of the six uh, areas to focus in on during those single years that is listed in this article is social media, social media, social media. Why social media? Because social media, especially for women, can lead to a lot of comparison, depression, and sorrow. Social media can also just be an absolute time waster where there could have been better time spent in prayer, in education, in community, in getting involved, in rest. Let's be true with ourselves. Sometimes we binge watch television or are on social media rather than getting the rest or the prayer time in that we should. So again, being aware of that social media, it's okay not to have it. It's okay not to check it. And it's okay if it makes you feel lousy because that's what social media is. It's meant to show you the lives of everyone else and their best moments that they want to share. Social media for me was a hard one when I was not married yet and saw everyone getting married and saw all of the people that I mentored who were years behind me getting married. That's difficult. There was one thing commented on an article I was reading where this woman said, I was single and I saw all my friends get married and I saw all of the kids that I babysat get married as well and I still saw myself single. And so sometimes that connectedness on social media, that false connectedness can make it a little harder in the state in life that you're in of finding joy and peace, those fruits of the Holy Spirit. So number five is prayer. And I would say the most important to our service and prayer, in my opinion and in my journey of leaving, living those prolonged years not married yet, uh, for me, prayer was the heart and soul of why I really don't think I despaired. Were there difficult days? Yes. But there wasn't a moment of despairing. I always knew God had me right where he had me for a reason, even if it was challenging and there was joy in that. 
I can think of for me, you know, going to daily mass was so important, getting up before everything else and really spending that time in prayer. And I wouldn't just go to daily mass. I'd spend 30 minutes before or after mass in prayer before the blessed sacrament, adoration if possible. I really tried to go to confession either weekly or every two weeks. And sometimes we have this misconception that we only need to go to confession if we're in the state of mortal sin. It's not true. If you were in a state of mortal sin, you better go running to confession. But Pope St. John Paul II literally went to confession every single day. I don't think this was because he was in a state of mortal sin. I think it's because the level of God's grace and mercy, and number one, grace, is so important that it can help us in working through those day-to-day little sins and bad habits. And confession gives us, one, the grace, and two, the accountability to prayerfully and faithfully work through our brokenness, our human frailty. So daily confession and, or sorry, daily mass and confession at least every two weeks and maybe even weekly is very helpful for those additional graces. Uh, For me too, in this prayer section, I spent a full summer long of formation with a religious community. Uh, They had a program for people who were not, you know, looking to join religious life, but to really take that month away to enter into a deep state of prayer and uh, that, that community of being with the, with the religious community and the formation and the education. These are things that you can never do when you're married and they're incredible opportunities. And number six, and it comes back to even what I just mentioned, as Sarah Moon in this Radiant Magazine article mentions in Living the Most of Your Single Life, she says, embrace opportunities. Again, I said that a moment ago, you know, that summer-long formation, it was life-changing. It gave me a foundation of prayer that I otherwise wouldn't have had at that level. It gave me an example in the mentorship of religious community of brothers and sisters in religious life, hearing their stories of their single years before they finally chose to enter into religious life. And often many of our religious brothers and sisters lived those prolonged single years. So again, small sacrifices, get involved, community, limit social media in that comparison game, grow in prayer and embrace opportunities, whatever they might be, serving It might even be traveling. I think sometimes this overemphasis of traveling is real in those single years. I think it's a great gift. Uh, But embrace opportunities that God is sending your way for your growth and for you to delight in the life that God has given you. Now, kind of to summarize all of this, I was thinking about the feast day tomorrow that we celebrate, August 30th, of St. Jean Jugon. She is the founder of the Little Sisters of the Poor, who have been in the news a lot the last few years with uh, making sure that they don't have to pay for contraception and abortifacients and all of those things. And they won, remember the lawsuit. But St. Jean Jugon, the founder of the Little, or founder, foundress of the Little Sisters of the Poor, She lived her vocation in the here and now. She didn't wait until later. And she lived prolonged single years. She didn't know for sure that she wasn't going to marry, but she knew God had a plan for her. There's a story about how she had actually received a couple of marriage proposals, one at about 18 and another around the age of 24. And she didn't marry when she was younger. She told her mother at one point, she said, God wants me for himself. He's keeping me for work, work which is not yet founded. I found this riveting because she wasn't in a religious order. She didn't have a family. Uh, But here this young woman was understanding that I'm called to holiness now. And she was living out her current state in life. 
Now, at 25, she became a nurse and was working in a hospital. At one point, she met a poor elderly woman and saw the face of Christ in this stranger. On a cold night, she carried literally the woman to her home and placed the woman in her bed and cared for her. Next thing you know, Jean Jagan finds herself sleeping in the attic and she begins caring for one elderly woman after another. Finally, she had to rent space out in order to provide rooms for the many people she was caring for. And years later, she obtains an old convent where she was able to house 40 people to care for the sick. Saint Jean Jugan didn't wait to figure out what her vocation exactly was. She lived holiness in her current state in life, took joy in it, and recognized God had a great plan for her if she could only abandon herself in peace and joy to that today.